Hum, not drum. Hum, not drum. Hi there. Welcome to another Hum Not Drum podcast, the ongoing series where I chat to people that are interesting and inspiring about work, about life and about whatever comes up. Welcome to episode two of And The List Goes On with Andy Smith. Mr Smith, Andy Smith, where we last left you was the world of petrol station giveaways and breakfast cereal delights and swallowing football set balls. (laughs) Yeah, thank God that came out. Well, yeah. Do you remember its passing? I don't actually. It was probably you know a mixture of what what we were having for Christmas Day. Well, it's actually Boxing Day, was it? So we'd have a Boxing Day tea. So I was I was eating enough to um, to create the movement to start with. But I think yeah. it was about two days before before said football was discovered. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I didn't really want to play the game after that with that same ball bearing. Yeah. But of course, they only had one. Luckily, I've got. As a set now, not the original, but I've got a new, well, an old new uh, Chasm football which me and Mrs. Smudge sometimes play on a Sunday. And uh, yeah, the ball bang is perfect. Yeah. Uh, but I make sure that my level of head is not anywhere near the goal. Good. Um, no, because I've learned my lesson. Yeah, no reoccurrence of ball bearing ingestion then. No more well, ball thank- bangs of ever entered my gob that's good because i know a few listeners wrote in and were quite concerned so i'm glad that that's uh, that's not something that we need to worry about so no, so we we sort of talked that. about your childhood and where the collections gene if you will or the urge started uh w- w- with you and then i guess we're we'll move on now going into senior school and you know becoming a teenager and yeah. and how how things progressed i mean talk to me well, about it, that it, it was a slow progress i think you went to the, to the big school i will start the story by um the only kid out of say 300 new pupils plus big school yeah. uh, but we were we were in the annex which was down the road by at least a mile and a half two miles the big boy school uh, I ended up going because my brother said, come with me. And he's six years older than me. <laughs> and he took me to the wrong school. He took me to the, his big boy school. Uh-huh. He then said, I've got to go. Uh, and I looked around and saw absolutely nobody that I knew. They were all a lot bigger. I started to get a little bit quivery lippy. And Mrs. Fisher uh, saw me, Andrew, and uh, called me over and drove me in the car, took me to the real school. So I was actually half a day late and I never actually picked up um, the slack. I, I, I was always half a day late after that. All the way through your school career. So thanks for my brother for taking me uh, on a wild goose chase to the wrong school. Only me would manage to do that. So I didn't start very well, let's put it that way. You know, <laughs> it was very hard for me to be the new boy who was even brand newer than the ones who already got acquainted through whatever. They, they were all sitting next to each other and you know, chums and I had to sit next to um, Francis Biedervelt, Billy, and uh, we became very good mates. I was very good at cartoons, so one of the things I used to do is draw lots of lovely cartoons for people. Because what happened was, when you lined up against a school field and you get picked out in the, the lineup as the as the skills went further down, you know, everyone got picked, the top guys in football, and then it whittled down to me, the guy with the wooden leg, the fattest boy in school had a big red face, was very spotty. 
And even he got picked, as did the guy with the gammy leg, before me. So what you're saying there, Andy, is that your prowess on the sports field was not really anything to write home about. Yeah, I mean, cross-country runs, I used to stop for a fag and then cheat and walk with the rest of it or even get a bus down the road. So <laughs> the teachers weren't fooled because they were, they were on patrol. So I had loads of people who snitched on me. So I guess the sports thing I was never very good at, but the art I was. So I got my own back with my lovely Carandash crayons and, and paints and, and drawing you know, these beautiful pictures. Of course, the football captains, uh, I had a long memory, of course, and they I, they, um, they wanted me to help them. And, of course, as they didn't help me on the football field, neither did I help them in the art oh, lesson. So uh, an elephant never forgets, and that's true of no, Andy Smith. Exactly, exactly. So I was scarred for life on football, um, playing it. Um, yeah. Despite still collecting all the kind of stickers that, that, that ended up being more mullet uh, led than the Ian Eura who had bright yellow hair on the 68 stickers. Yeah, so are we into the 70s now then? Whereabouts in time are we, roughly? Uh, I would say, uh, yeah, 72 was when I went to the main big boy school. Okay, Not fine. the right one, yeah. apparently, but there we go. <laughs> yeah, so between 72 and 74 is when I started to morph into this kind of... Um, Slightly scary character. I was, I was a, you know, I, I, I grew my hair longer than most people in a kind of hippie way. Not quite Rick Waitman, but uh, not far off. <laughs> so when you're doing cookery, and uh, I had to wear a hairnet, looked very silly because if I was mixing my batter, you know, I didn't want all my curly long locks going in there. No, not very appetising. So of course, it was a ridicule of being in a class of uh, of a few guys and then the rest all girls and being in cookery and and having long hair and being you know that was probably the only reason i went into doing that was because i wanted art as a whole long option in other words do art as a whole afternoon so you had to marry it up with something else and mine was home economics uh-huh and of course car carrying your food back in the basket you know and everyone said have you trotted something and smelling their their feet uh looking at the bottom of their shoe it was um yeah it was all banter. I think kids then were quite uh, as cruel as kids probably are these days. They have a way of, of needling you, you know? So I'm getting the picture of somebody that arrives in a bigger environment and has found a love, the art, but has to make some sacrifices to get what they want. Yeah, because you can't really do art in, in kind of blocks of kind of double lessons. You have to do a whole afternoon. Otherwise, you know, by the time you've got everything out, you'd be packing it all back up again. So... That's the only reason I did it. And I actually end up getting art at, at all kind of levels. But that's later on. Back to the collecting. It was definitely starting to um, get into the vinyl. I was a big singles collector. Um, okay. And that's really where the, the collection really grew because they were smaller. You started out with a little case of your mum would have bought you from Woolworths, which held about 25 singles. And I guess they were kind of like the CD wallet of its day perhaps or the ipod of its day you know this is my collection yeah they, they were just they were just kind of clunky little little handbags but but they were kind of boxy and then you put all your all your records in there not quite the ktel um one that used to used to pull the record and then that the, it stopped at a certain point and warped all your records right so i started to bring those into school 
when I was doing music, I would prefer to uh, sit in a room and listen to Yes albums, or they would bring in albums by Budgie or Hawkwind or whatever. So the hair grew, the the kind of rebellious nature that I always had and always will have, starting to wear kind of long grey coats from the Army and Navy store and not really taking the school uniform very seriously. So you start wearing leather jackets when you're supposed to wear blazers. But of course, me putting a gold hymn book in one of my pockets, then that broke and uh, all the thread just came out and the blazers just started to look so threadbare and crap. It was probably a a hand-me-down for my brother. So Mm. one of the downsides of having an older brother as six years older than me is that he would influence my record collection in other words you know when i was eight uh or nine he would uh say you've got to get this album by spooky tooth it's brilliant so i'd go to the second hand record shop and buy this album that ended up being in his collection the same for the second album which is by the kinks so they were the first albums i bought but they weren't they weren't albums that i bought because i thought oh i must buy that they were albums that my brother told you to buy suggested to me that i'd buy that's interesting that you say that um i have an older sister she's three years older than me and i kind of have a different experience of it where she introduced me to the bands that maybe were slightly beyond where I was and I saw that as a good thing so she introduced me to New Order and The Cure and bands such as that so I actually sort of took the positives but maybe your brother started a bit too early with you. It was grooming me a lot earlier than I should be. Most kids would probably be um, that's grooming in the right way I guess. <laughs> it was, um, we shared a bedroom as well you know we, we right. probably had the bunk beds to start with. I just remember him bringing over quite a lot of hippies. So we're talking about 69, 70 or whatever. And I was still yeah. in a room with him and gazing at all the records, the uh, sleeves that he'd pinned onto the uh, onto the walls, as well as posters and things. It was almost a den to start with, where my sister's room was much more kind of, you know, demure yeah ours was kind of almost like a record shop i just remember a dance set we had and we he'd have a sizable record collection i guess nothing like mine i guess i got i was bitten by the bug because maybe because of him and and his influence you know if he told me to put my hand in a fire at one time i would have done because you get that kind of older brother looking up to and and um you know wishing you were him but i just remember him bringing back lots of weird people with fuzzy hair and uh, smoking. Not, not necessarily dope. Maybe it was. Maybe that's why I was so uh, stoned when I used to go <laughs> to school the next day. Yeah, we, we, we um, I shared a lot of my brother's friends because they were in the room listening to music. So I had no choice, even if bedtime was supposed to be kind of eight or nine o'clock for, for a young 10-year-old. I would have to sit and listen to all these weird uh, bands like Amondol or then the Straubs, the Kinks. Then he was into the reggae. These are all the things I would get into. Fairport Convention. The list goes on, Julian. He was was my kind of advisor of what I should be listening to. And then you just do it because you want to please. But also then I actually quite dig quite a lot of the music, you know. So a lot of the albums that he... He had, when he went to uni, I, I had to almost replicate what, what he'd um, 
he'd taken away with him. Ah, I see. So, I mean, you talk about it originally as a as a negative, but I don't think I really believe you. I think in, in hindsight, he's influenced you at that very impressionable age. It was his fault, man. It was his fault that I got into into collecting records, you know? Totally. And also then when he when he left, he he left a hole in what you had mm. probably come to realise as your collection. You sort of had that anxiety of refilling and restocking. Yeah, absolutely. And then you'd you know, you get into like uh, these sampler albums that came out through Island Records. Uh, one was called You Can All Join In. And what you get are, because Island Records was a very, very progressive label where mm. it would encompass reggae and rock and folk. Uh, it started out as a reggae label with uh, Chris Blackwell, but these sample albums of great ways of getting into bands like King Crimson or even Nick Drake or John Martin or uh, Jethro Tull, all these, all these little tracks, and then you start to investigate what else is on that album and then you start to by the time i was starting to get all those kind of albums in their complete way on pink island uh, it had to be pink island that was a kind of the golden era i think for me and then you get into like uh, dr strangely strange king crimson uh jimmy cliff oh god it goes on yeah. but but those albums were great little ways and the first one i think was 14 and sixpence old money you yeah. won't remember that, Jim. No, so I won't. Know, I don't remember that. That's, that's alien to you. Yeah. So you buy these albums as a as a good way of, of hearing the new music that you wanted to hear. And I don't think they'd do them anymore. If they do, they're so diverse of, of, of artists. These were all cool tracks. You know, there yeah. wasn't really a bad one on any of those albums. So then... So there was, if I'm hearing you right, then these albums would be the beginning of picking up trails with artists, and then you would explore and sort of go down the go down into the rabbit hole, so to speak. Yeah, and then I then you know as time merely moved on, I started to then collect entire labels. You know, so whether it's Pink Island from '67 to 1971 or whatever. DRAM was another one, you know, I was collecting, that was a Decca kind of freak out label where they'd have Moody Blues, David Bowie, The Lapping Gnome being one of those tracks. Um, yeah. And uh, some really good, The Move, all these all these sixes artists. And, and, and again, they were quite diverse, but they, they, they were still, it wasn't really a bad track. It just meant I had to go to record fairs to search these 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 gems ah okay so they weren't always readily available in the local record shop then no half the time they they, they sold so many uh, so few copies one track was by a band called tinton abbey because i started to collect psychedelia english psychedelia you know how one track leads you to another track and you oh, I must get more of that and you start you start honing in on years mm. In DRAM's case, uh, one of my prize singles, which I probably bought for 15 quid at the time, which is a lot of money. Yeah. It, uh, it now fetches about two and a half grand. And it was, it was a track by Titan Abbey called B-Side, which was actually A-Side. But huh. it was all very, um, very trippy. Right. And so, so, yeah, when you start collecting entire labels, that's when you realize you have a, a major problem, you know? 
But did you see it as a problem at that point? No, not at the time. I saw it as a challenge. It was like it was like the son of uh, of the stickers or the son of um, the kings and queens of England and all those petrol station things. Yeah. All I was doing was was challenging myself to have you know again another entire collection. But this way, I'd find them in junk shops or um, yeah, or secondhand record fairs. Yeah, stalls and and I would just slowly pick up uh, records that that had to be um, in the order that that not that I bought them, but the order that they came out. So that was the other thing that became a little bit tricky was I was filing all my singles in in not just date order but month order because <laughs> I, I couldn't I couldn't abide having Rolling Stones come on. And then the entire rest of my Rolling Stones collection, all in one batch. It didn't tell a story. Right. You know, I can't have to start me up about 12 singles before that was kind of, it's all over now. So they were dispersed. So it just meant my filing was, was not just meticulous, but a right pain in the ass to try and find stuff, you know? Yes. You'd have to go, you get that you get that uh, ability to flick really quickly. And I don't think I'd ever lost that um, ability to to go through records really quickly with, with my kind of eagle eye and then spot them and find where where I'd filed them. Yeah. You know, I was collecting bands like the Crochet Donut Ring, uh, Dan Tallinn's Chariot, you know. That's they, quite, they were, quite obscure. They were so kind of of their time. But when things, when symbols go like backwards yeah and it's yeah, like yeah. you go and it's all very very trippy and pink floydy you know that, that it was a golden era but it was the most expensive um subject to collect if i'd yeah. have collected say the contemporary normal bands it wouldn't cost me half as much money sure but i guess though that speaks to you your identity and your passion for music which i guess was oh. developing because you're your collector's urge is taking you down this path, but actually you're, you know, you're getting a real benefit from that collection at that point in time, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, no I would still buy the, the mainstream stuff. You know, my, my wife does call me a musical snob. In some respect, she's right, because I would hate buying mainstream stuff that everyone else is buying because then it wasn't really a great game to play. You yeah. know, I would find records and discover bands that then became famous and they were no longer desirable to collect because <laughs> because they'd found the mainstream. They they changed their kind of sound to to appeal to the masses. They sold and out. That's when I got off the bus. So would you be the person that would say in the playground, yeah, oh, oh do you like that song, do you? Yeah, well, uh, I preferred their early stuff. Mm. That would be you. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And even the Eurovision this weekend, you know, I said that the our entry, which obviously got no points, yes, was just a substandard um, rag and bone man. I just thought it was a substandard rag and bone man song. Yeah. We had a heated debate about that. But I see. I, I'm right and she's wrong, but she hates me being a musical snob. Yeah. And she likes Islands in the Stream by Kenny and Dolly. And you're not a I fan? I don't think of anything worse, you know. Right. I prefer, the, I prefer the original Bee Gees version or the oh. demo they did. So I was always having to have something that, that no one else had, you know. Yeah, okay. I was the first kid on the block. Yeah, the exclusivity. And, and your 
collection at this point was it sort of more of a solitary affair or were there were there partners in in crime, in crime. or yeah i mean going back to the kind of school days we would buy stuff that we all liked but then you you just you just discover stuff i mean northern soul uh, not Norman Soul, as someone told me, and a, a bloke <laughs> called Soul, and his first name's Norman. But Northern Soul came out in kind of '75, in 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 where I where I kind of uh, got into it, as well as prog rock. How 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 eclectic can someone be to actually like Northern Soul as much as prog rock, as much as kind of uh, mainstream-ish bands like you know not just a glam rock but elo and, and the clever kind of um pop sound of the time uh that just shows that i wasn't just collecting one genre i, I was going hell for leather and buying buying rare northern soul stuff as well because it, it was it was a, a challenge to try and get this stuff and you'd, you'd go up to the dj and ask what it was and it was like i'm not telling you you know because wow. they didn't want anyone else to have their white label that they'd spent a lot of money so so basically it's again whatever collecting genre people have they tend to be very guarded about it there's not mm. there's not a lot of sharing goes on really yeah i think it was a it was a bit of a one-upmanship that someone had out on the floor by doby gray on the original kind of uh sixties label but you heard them in in um in a discotheque i used to Hear a lot of mine in the place called the Dancing Slipper. The Dancing Slipper, right? Dancing okay. Slipper, yeah, Slipper that dances. And and there's all these kind of sweaty clubs where people were doing backflips and uh, wearing again the fashion of the time was the, the the kind of Oxford bags and the and the stay press shirts. They're all kind of the smart mods of that time, but they were into soul. And then you've got the kind of long hairs who were into the kind of Grebo stuff, either whether it's Zeppelin or Black Sabbath. But I used to cross over to all these these artists because I actually got bitten by the music bug. Mm. And I'm still continuing to be bitten by it now, you know? Yeah, you haven't it's grown out of it now yet. now to find the stuff. Yeah, Or discover okay. new albums. So, the, so this exclusivity that you talk about, were you just as fiercely guarding of your collection uh, as, as those? I was, or? Proud, I was proud of it. I was proud of the fact that, that when friends came over and they climbed the ladder uh, uh, up into the loft and, and then ended up having a musical experience, I used to love... The, the problem is the bigger the collection the the shorter the the the, the kind of sample of, of the of the track I would play because I'd then get so excited and say oh, you like that you'd love this and suddenly you'd move the arm off the deck and take the record back file it and put another one on and in in a way and it always irritates me now when people don't play the entire song yeah I was guilty of that you know very early on because there was so much of it that I had. And the more I had, the more I got like a, a kind of in a in a kind of tailspin of, oh, you've got to hear this, you've got to hear that, you got to blah, blah, blah. So I suppose now when when I'm listening on the iPhone or whatever, and the collection is 75,000 odd songs on there, taking up most of the room of the memory, mm. is that even I'm kind of moving on, moving on, moving on. And it's very sad that albums now, people do that, they don't tend to do it to like Dark Side of the Moon where the whole album is to be listened to in one sitting because yeah. it makes sense. 
because it's all segued track into track into track mm. you need to have these albums played in their entirety yeah. which going back to my school days is what exactly what i did we listened to entire albums because yeah. they were short enough to do that in one yeah. lesson yeah i mean i'm a big fan of the album format but it's a format that's been under massive pressure ever since ipods and itunes democratized if you will the the way uh that people consume music and that um mm. Everybody has their different view of it. And some people say, actually, I'd rather have a, a shuffle feature that gives me a mix. Uh, I've always wanted to understand an album as a body of work and mm. as a narrative. But what I'm hearing is that you're someone that's inviting friends round and, and sharing the enthusiasm of your mm. collection. How, you know, did you, do you think you came across as the sort of, cool guy that was you know sharing or did you come across as the sort of rather hectic mad professor yeah mad professor you've put it yourself yeah i i think uh a bit of both really i mean everyone knew me as, as, as a guy who just loved music so much more than more than girlfriends really at the time yeah um because music was was so uh i i could i could just escape into music um it it unlike tv you know you could go back and back and back because we didn't have vhs recorders back then it was yeah. just watch it and forget about it but music i could visit each time and and it was a it was a good friend to me in my in my kind of angst ridden teenage years where i would go up into my room and uh, not even put my headphones on. I just made sure I opened the windows so everyone else could have a blast of it. And people <laughs> were looking up and seeing this this weird kid with his long hair staring out the window, as well as trying to write lyrics. I would just like to share my music with everyone, and it was playing right across the fields. Right. Um, I took Whether great pleasure in that, I guess, yeah. but um, no, good. probably not a lot of people did. And you know, I like, guess got the fucking windows. <laughs> So your record player, was it mainly then you, you know, you could play the record. There was no recording of the records back then or cassette players. And because I guess music hadn't really become portable yet in that sense, had it? No, I mean, you had a music center to start with, which was probably 39p a week. From, uh, you had to pay your mom from the Grattan catalog. Mm. And when it arrives, it's all lovely and shiny with the, with the kind of mock graphic equalizer. It was probably made by Bush. Yeah, or Sanyo or whatever. Some of the, you know they weren't they weren't very good. And they weren't separate. It was you know the speakers were were very rubbish. Really, I would end up then putting more speakers into the into the um, hole, so doubling up the sound, but then probably blowing the entire <laughs> channel of the left hand side. Yeah. So soon the music center became going over to sort of Superfy and buying a deck, you know, and then buying. Yeah, you know, an amp, and then buying proper speakers like, mm. um, you know, not JBLs, but you know the the equivalent at the time, Mission speakers or whatever. Yes. They become they become an expense, and even then you think, oh, I could really do with a new new sound system because this one isn't. What used to bug me is that that, and it still does that because I collect a lot of stuff from from you know the 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 kind of golden era of the of the 40s or the 50s and the 60s they don't sound any better 
in fact, they sound a lot worse on higher class players. It just, I quite like the crackles, but some of this stuff didn't sound that good on the record players that they weren't really invented to be listened on, if you see what I mean. Yeah, they were more trebly because you know they they they, they did they took off quite a lot of the the bottom end because what happened is that the the more the rumble, the more the 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 the, the arm would jump up and down. You know, mm. I remember sometimes when you used to have a, a scratch on a record, the way to try and do it is is weight the 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 arm with a load of pennies, so it actually grooved in. And, and played it without the jump you know you stop the jump but then you yeah. end up looking like a lathe with all this vinyl kind of being etched out to stop yes. the scratch but you, you stop the scratch but then you end up making it sound a lot worse you know yeah you're degrading your your asset your yeah. record and aren't because you? they were my prized collection the last thing you wanted to do to uh, ruin my my record collection no. if it jumped and sometimes you got used to that jump. I remember a friend having Ziggy Stardust and it jumped at the same time. And that's when I first heard that album, quite a lot round there. So when I got my copy, without the jump, it didn't... I, oh, where's that jump gone? Of course, <laughs> I got a pristine copy. And theirs was, 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 was battered to buggery. Was you know? knackered, so, yeah. So I'm imagining then this burgeoning teenager going to record fairs, record shops entertaining their friends developing a love for music you know mm. that sounds um gregarious and dare i say it expensive boy was it expensive you know there would there'd be times julian when i would not have any um school dinners because i'd spend my dinner money on an hp basis at hartley's in ruddington where i lived and they wouldn't release the album until i paid it all off and then i used to be able to give them the last 50 or 60p that I owed them and then they would be able to let me have the album. Yeah. So you, you, you're kind of funding your habit on the never, never then. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, in some ways, or just using money that was meant to fill my belly, but instead I was filling my ears with, with glorious music. You know, you could buy that. You could buy those uh, cheaper singles that had already been ex jukebox, but as a collector, you you don't really want to have the centre that's that's being dinked out, and dink is the right word. Yeah. There's a dinking machine that takes out the the centre. Yes. So it always used to look less desirable when, and also you then had to get an adapter to play them. Yes. Whether those spider things or yes. even a, a a disc, an entire block that then was just under the size of the hole, and then you put your record in. Yeah emulating i guess a jukebox it was always a fag and I, I never used to like those in my collection but there were quick ways of buying singles cheaper than than uh the ones that you'd have to buy from wh smith or woolworths which okay. had the center in there again it's completism you know it's going yeah. back to that kinks thing where i uh got arrested in the previous episode oh did you mention that i thought i thought you th- thought you mentioned that in the last episode you know oh i did indeed oh my god yes <laughs> good again it's, it's 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 one of the downsides of, of being an obsessive collector yeah absolutely. you go through these um financial hurdles or prison <laughs> in my case <laughs> uh yeah all for this all for the sake of completism yeah totally and so you're still living at home at this point and i'm i want to yeah. get an idea of the the sort of size of the collection and the 
the volume that it's taking up. If you imagine that the, the, the loft where I was, which was a converted loft, built just for me and not being a sport brat, but I think they just wanted A, to increase the value of the, of the property, but also there was a need to have a third bedroom. Having this extra bedroom was all mine. So I started in the bedroom with two kind of, the, the bunk beds basically made into singles. And then eventually one of those went down. Then a couple of the wardrobes went because the, the music took over the room. If you see ah, I mean. you displaced all the furniture. So in the end, I was I was just in one little corner of a single bed, and the rest of it was sound system, guitars, and uh, records. And my my father getting very worried that, that that suddenly it would all come caving down with the weight. Ah, did you hear the telltale creaks of the joists then? Yes, and 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 by then, if you remember, my father being very kind of cooperative, felt that I I'd become a, a a bit of an idle kind of dreamer, so he would want you know people to help him in the garden, and I'd wave to him, and he'd wave back, sticking his fingers up at me. He said once that uh, me and Andy have an understanding. I do bugger all for him and he does bugger all for me. <laughs> so although that lovely, charming relationship we had, it changed a little bit when I became a bit more insular and a bit more kind of into my own kind of world, a world that wasn't painting little figurines in the kitchen. It was me going upstairs after tea and staying there until I was told to shut the music down, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I guess your father would have been a bit upset about that. Did he ever? Did Not he ever really. mention I mean, it? I, we we'd still share music in the lounge with the roaring fire and having a, a jolly good game of Scrabble, but he'd be playing Schubert or Chopin, and I'd be playing Queen, which he actually liked, and some of my stuff. So we we would sit there and, and share music still, and. Um, so, so it was it was just a different relationship. The age of innocence and and me badgering him to go to the petrol stations. I no longer really cared where he got his petrol from. I was much more pocket money, you know, every Saturday, and then whizzing up to Nottingham and going to the record shops. Yeah, I'm not saying I was paid a fortune, and I can't remember actually working at Boots or anything like that to supplement this. It was. It was a case of, of, of saving up a little bit. Yeah. And then I have a big spending spree. Very, very good. Or flogging my old record, uh, flogging my old, old um, you know, SO things to pay for my music, you know. So, yes, you going back to your point, it was it became a very expensive habit. Yeah. So you could sell some of the things you already had. People were, you know, that might be a bit behind you uh yeah would would want to buy it well i i fl- I, I swapped an action man for for a beatles plate and then probably uh I, I think actually eventually that that um fell off in the wind and broke but um <laughs> i i would always be trading with 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 someone or other i bought a, a lambretta sx 200 with some spare records i had and really had i been canny and even the fact that I couldn't take uh, the Lambrette around in fourth gear, which is a very silly thing to do. Being a bigger person, you know, I would just lean to one side and then suddenly, phew, and I actually had a crash. I went flying into woman's wall uh, down the road and uh, 
my mom never found out uh, until uh, a, well a lot later on oh how's how's your son oh which one um well the young one he came crashing around in that lambretta then have a crash helmet ruined his suit <laughs> so uh go, if i'd have kept the lambretta even for spare parts it would have been a king's ransom now yes you know so i wasn't always very good at uh, uh, trading but but in the early days yeah you would swap things you'd swap books magazines uh and spare records so you 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 built up your, your cash flow to buy the proper stuff to get rid of the stuff that you thought well someone will have this and they they did especially the northern soul stuff you know i would I would find in junk shops, you know, stuff this stuff that still wasn't really relatively known, and then play it, maybe even record it on a cassette, then then flog it on, you know, to to some other unsuspecting kind of mug in the streets, you know. Oh, I've got this, it's you know, it's a rare copy. Probably wasn't that rare, but they thought it was, and they they'd give me cash for it. Yeah. So uh, so that's an interesting point for me is. The value of your collection lives predominantly in your head as you walk around, doesn't it? And mm. um, so some of the predictions that you make about what is valuable is it's biased by what you enjoy yourself, but also um, you know some of the things that you think will end up being valuable and maybe and maybe not. And and vice versa. That, yeah, exactly. Were you engaged with trying to build something of value or was it more to do with following your heart having, and completing? Yeah, having it, just just owning it was, was a lovely thing. You'd find these records by people doing tape mixes, you know, people at work. When I did finally get a job, most of it went on music or being in a band and recording in studio. So a lot of my money wasn't buying you know nutty clothes i certainly would buy records that i loved and i'd buy them because i'd hear them on a, a mixtape and i think what the hell's that yeah you know, certainly the english psychedelia at the time they were so melodic and and it's amazing how they even got a release uh, as a record and in the charts because they weren't commercial they yeah. were just cool but at that time i think that the output of, of music was greater in the 60s than it ever was you know later on and if i had a, a dream job it were going over to people's houses and and being almost like a musical doctor and, and recommending this stuff you know i had i seriously once thought about doing that and and building people's like like a chef would do a lovely kind of uh three-course meal i would do the same with with music but the problem with that is i'm such a musical snob you know and a lot of my friends are of the same we we're so into music that that uh normality of, of, of banality is is something that i just can't i can't abide to have if i'm going to have a few albums that, that i don't particularly like but that they work because that if i'm doing kind of um mixes they have to be there because otherwise it would just sound so uh, its own backside. So I have to sometimes level myself out. But I do like um, Chirpy Chirpy Cheap Cheap by the middle of the road, 1971. <laughs> In fact, 71, which is obviously the 50 year anniversary now, there was some fine music that came out that year. You just look at all the stuff that came out in 1971. 
which is obviously the, coinciding with my um, my move from junior school to uh, to the beginning of senior school. Yeah. When I got the right one. Yes, that's right. And what's the cream of the crop for you then from 1971? Well, well that's a really difficult question, but, but I guess you've got all those great albums like Tapestry by Carole King, you know, uh, these similar albums. Even the Ross Stewart one, you know, Never a Dull Moment, or the Cat Stevens albums. The list goes on. A lot of the kind of singer-songwriters we get now have probably been influenced by the Joni Mitchell Blue album that came out in '71. I could, I could almost say that yeah, the uh, the best Yes album, called the Yes album, came out in '71 as well. Um, the best Jethro Tull album probably came out in '71, Aqualung. But you know, so so I, I I think that what music did for me or does for me is that I can date stamp when I bought the albums or listened to the albums for the first time or first heard them on the radio um, each one has got a memory of its own what you're wearing at the time what you're looking at what you're thinking about you know mm. all the uh, crushes you probably had at school as well <laughs> you know or had your heart broken yeah there's a track that will always bring you back to that going back to the school discos you know because I was a, a, a bit frightening in some ways a bit strange not not in a not in a strange way. No, I was just a bit a bit weird, I guess, because I was probably into art too much and writing poetry and 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 looking a bit stranger. Then when it came to the slow dancers, I would be the one at the end that was still looking around for someone to dance with. Oh. And it's a poor tale when even the girl who smelt a wee wee wouldn't dance with you at the end. Oh no! I know. But yeah, so so school did did um, did make sometimes you feel a, a bit kind of blue because you know everyone else was getting off with people and then you were still. But then that's when music came back in. It was something I could go back and and it was mine, you know. And I would I would probably play tracks that that uh, my brother would have played me, but to sort of recreate my time at home. I still do it now, you know. I still got albums that. Oh, I must hear that because it brings you right back to the time of the of the stale smoke that that um, some of my brother's mates had left behind. But the whole living at home thing was, yeah, there was halcyon days, and music sometimes brings it back. Not that it's saying I'm always looking back, but I don't think the same the same essence of 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 love and and memories would be listening to the the latest justin bieber track or you know or beyond that shows how crap i am on, on music well, i'm going to say justin bieber because yeah, exactly. it's the first thing that came in my head well, no he did have a he did have a single out this year but i think what's what what i take from what, what you've said and i identify with it myself is that music and also collections are a comfort aren't they mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've invested time in in making them, and then there are such associations and connections with them, and and I think lots of people have a similar experience where mm. hearing hearing something can be extremely evocative and take you right back to a particular time, in both a good and a bad way at at, at times, and it's all part of the the human experience. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally hear where you're 
where you're coming from, and I'm sure lots well, of people would agree. The great thing for me is because of, 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 of my you know, advancing years, I do have a, a fantastic legacy of different music genres, like, you know, reggae in the late uh, 60s, you know, The Liquidator by Harry J. Allstars, and then, you know, Desmond Decker. But then you, you, you've got you've got reggae, you've got soul, you've got glam rock, you've got um, pub rock, you've got punk rock, you've got progressive rock, you've got mainstream, you've got uh, a whole... And then you've got the 80s, of course, where synths became the thing. Mm. The problem with, with me writing music or, or, or co- collaborating with music um, and, and songwriting is that because I had such a fast record collection... It wasn't that I was I was emulating or trying to copy those, but every chord that the guitarist would play, or the sequence, I'd say, yeah, I could play. I know exactly what that music is, so <laughs> it would it would prohibit me to write any any music because I'd always compare it to stuff I already got. Yeah, so it stifled your own creation. So it's very yeah. difficult to write write songs when you you've got that musical snobbery and also an encyclopedic memory and brain that you can quickly snap up and say that sounds i know exactly what what that sound is is from and you'll find the record and that that that's how what it's taken from certainly the new stuff you know yeah totally so you were in a number of bands and i wonder whether next time we can talk a bit about that experience it sounds to me like your collection and your love of music is actually maybe holding you back in the creative sense, making music is have I understood yeah, but they, that right? Yeah, and they crashed together. You know, at an enormous kind of you know explosion. Ooh, sounds exciting! And on that cliffhanger, let's leave it here, listeners, for the second episode. Next time, I guess we'll be chatting to Andy about his music making career and the highs and lows of that, alongside what he was collecting at the time, probably. Anyway. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you for digging deep again and speak to you next time. Okay, my friend. Hum, not drum. Hum, not drum. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hum, not drum is a content creator for working people and we make live radio shows and podcasts and whatever we're asked to really for people like you. If you want to know more about what we do, just get in touch humnotdrum.com or julian at humnotdrum.com. Maybe speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye.